0: Today on the Matt Wall Show, a serial killer was released twice from prison and then killed each time again. The story only gets crazier from there and more infuriating from there. And it's part of a deeper cultural trend that goes beyond the justice system that I want to talk about today. Also, Antifa plans to disrupt my event at Georgia Tech tonight, so that'll be fun. Plus, the U.S. Air Force brags about its LGBTQ initiatives while war rages in Europe. And a tennis player cries after being heckled by somebody in the audience. This emotional display, of course, means that she is courageous, the media tells us. And finally, a daily, daily Cancellation, we'll discuss the Kim and Kanye drama. It's not just celebrity gossip. I mean, it is that, but there's something more going on here that we'll talk about as well. All of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. You know, mortgage rates continue to remain incredibly low. Will they stay this way throughout the year, though? Well, it's not likely. Uh, we know that every, everything seems to be going up these days, and that's why you need to call American financing. Lock into a low rate now, and potentially save yourself up to $1,000 a month. That's 12000 a year. And at this rate, that, that'll be enough to fill up, you know, one tank of gas, but you got to take the savings whenever you can find it. Think about how much that it could help to save money and uh, then give american financing a call there's no pressure no obligation no upfront or hidden fees just a simple conversation around ways to save big money without starting your loan over either so you're just you're you're getting in you're getting this done instead you can choose any um, term 10 years and over whatever makes sense for your budget and your future it's really that simple and you're saving money just do so now while rates are still low it only takes 10 minute call to learn more and if you start soon you could skip two mortgage payments, and may close in as fast as 10 days. So call 866-569-4711. That's 866-569-4711. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net, NMLS, 182-334, NMLS, ConsumerAccess.org. We begin on a Monday with an extraordinarily disturbing story that um, only gets worse and worse as you as you begin to peel back the layers of the putrid onion but um, there's a reason we're beginning here, and it's it's not just for shock value, and I'll explain in a minute. But first, the New York Times reports this. An 83-year-old Brooklyn woman, convicted twice of killing women she lived with, was charged with murder on Thursday after investigators found a head in her apartment that officials said belonged to a body discovered in a shopping cart last week. The police first discovered pieces of the victim, Miss Leiden's, remains in the early hours of March 3rd when a 911 caller reported that they had found body parts in a shopping cart outside of a pawn shop at the corner of Atlantic And Pennsylvania Avenues in Brooklyn, police officers arrived to find a woman's torso inside a multicolored bag with a flower decal, and they also, by the way, discovered the um, the 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 killer was uh, rolling around a grocery cart, a grocery store in one of those carts, and was sitting on top apparently of the severed leg of uh, of the victim. Now that's where we're beginning, and I said it only gets worse the deeper you go. So. You know, you're in for a a bumpy ride with this as the starting point. It turns out that the suspect, last name Marcelin, is an actual serial killer, having been twice convicted already of murdering two other women that we know of on two separate occasions. So the Times continues. Miss Marcelin has served decades in state prison in connection with two Manhattan homicides in 1963 and 1984. In October 1963, she was convicted of first-degree murder for fatally shooting her then-girlfriend in a Harlem apartment building. The state court judge overseeing the case imposed a life sentence after the jury was unable to decide whether to impose the death penalty. Court filing show. In May 1984, Miss Marcelin was released from prison on lifetime parole, according to state records. Less than a year later, after her body was found in a bag near Central Park, Manhattan prosecutors said Miss Marcelin had stabbed to death another woman that she had been living with. In 1986, she pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter, was sentenced to 6 to 12 years in prison, state records show. Because of her parole status, that sentence was added to the original life term. Over the next three decades, she repeatedly sought release on parole and was denied. In a 1997 appearance before the state parole board, Ms. Marcelin described the 1984 crime and said she had problems with women. Um, in 2010, the state denied another bid for parole, saying your release at this time is incompatible with the welfare and safety of the community. But then she was released on parole in 2019 Records show. Okay, so Marcelin killed a woman, first degree murder, sentenced to life in prison, but was released after 20 years. Marslin kills another woman, is sentenced to prison added on to the original life sentence. Is released again even though the parole board had previously said that it would be unsafe for society if we release you, they released him anyway. And then uh, and then uh, the killer proceeds to kill and dismember a third victim that we know of. So apparently big shocker here, a serial killer does not magically become less dangerous and less deranged after sitting in a cage for a few decades. There does not arrive a point where you can say, well, this deranged lunatic psychopath killer has been stewing in solitary confinement for 18 years. I'm sure they're normal now, right? That doesn't, doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. Um, and yet the killer was released again to kill again. But we're missing one detail here. So you've, you've, um, you've probably already maybe noted something. You thought probably, well, a female serial killer? That's that's unusual. It's not unheard of, but it's unusual. You don't hear very many of those. And a female serial killer who targets women. Now, now that probably is unheard of. But then the New York Times offers this detail. Miss Marcelin, who was listed as male in earlier court records, but now identifies as a woman, according to a law enforcement official, was indicted on second-degree murder charges on Thursday in the death of Susan Leiden, uh, accused of dismembering her and hiding her body parts. Okay, so this demented psychopath who dismembers women also happens to have a fetish where he likes to pretend to be a woman. And the New York Times, not to mention the cops, the court system, everybody, they're all making sure to respect this lunatic's delusional fetish and even participate in it. This is some straight-up Buffalo Bill, Silence of the Lambs stuff, where this guy likes to kill women and essentially assume their identity. It should be very clear to any rational person that his, quote, gender identity in this case is all part and parcel with the whole psychopathic routine. And even if it isn't, I mean, even if his masquerading as a woman has nothing to do with his murder of women, even if, even if he developed these two uh, quirks independently... Still, why should we care to respect his pronouns? The whole argument for respecting someone's pronouns is that we don't want to hurt their feelings. And I, I think that's a bad argument in general. But for a serial killer, we're actually worried about hurting his feelings? Now, this is one example, an extreme example, uh, but also not unprecedented, of a problem that permeates our society, which is that we don't tell people no. You know, We're not allowed to say no anymore. Nobody says no. We're so allergic to no that we won't even say it to a damn serial killer who asks us to affirm his alleged gender identity. A gender identity that it just just so happens will presumably mean that this killer of women will now be put in a women's prison. Again, any reasonable person can see that this is almost certainly why he is calling himself a woman, so that he could be housed with women, his prey of choice, and rather than saying, no, we're not doing that, you're going to a male prison, you freaking lunatic, instead the court system will say, well, okay, we respect that. I mean, we don't approve of uh, other things you've done, but we'll respect you here. They won't tell him no. The parole board wouldn't tell him no. The parole board told him, "Uh, you're dangerous to society, but uh, okay, you can go. Now, the media won't tell him no. The police won't tell him no. The prison system won't tell him no. This guy should get a no delivered to him by a firing squad, but he won't get that either. Nobody wants to say no. And we see this problem all over society, not just with transgender serial killers. Um, on Friday, we played a clip of a, of a morbidly obese plus size model, Tess Holiday, model in quotes there. I put model in quotes the same way we've got to put woman in quotes when talking about the serial killer. But... Um, this plus-sized uh, quote-unquote model, who, who, though clearly weighing somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 pounds, claims to be anorexic and attends weekly therapy sessions with a counselor who affirms that perception. You know, she apparently thinks that that uh, that when when she's when she's chowing down, the two seconds between bites count as deprivation and starvation. Like I, I'm anorexic because I'm not literally eating literally every second of the day. That's what she thinks, and she's affirmed in that view. She's told yes. She she goes to a dietitian, a dietician, once a week. Her dietician should be, well, telling her to go on a diet. But diets mean less food, and that means telling her no, and you can't do that. Everywhere you look, you see people who have never been told no. You see the, the plump fruit of our culture's refusal to say no, our obsession with affirmation. Every person you see walking around with purple hair and a million piercings, Demanding to be referred to as they or Xur or, or Zeus or whatever is yet another testament to our unfortunate habit of affirming everyone in everything all the time. Speaking of people who should be told no, I'm currently in Atlanta preparing to speak to, uh, at Georgia Tech tonight in the lead up to the women's swimming championships where biological male Leah Thomas will compete. Now I'll be talking, among other things about the beauty and value of the word no. Now, Leah Thomas is obviously not a serial killer, but he benefits from the extreme ideologically fueled permissiveness in our culture. And the primary victims of that relentless affirmation happen to also be women. I'll be speaking up in protest of his participation and also to explain why it's wrong and to make some points that go beyond sports, because this isn't about sports fundamentally. This is really about truth and about learning to say no, no to the nonsense, because we all know that it is nonsense. Even most of of them on the left know that it's nonsense. And yet we're supposed to cooperate with it anyway. We're supposed to abandon all at once the fundamental truth that all of us know and have always known, and, and we're supposed to do it for no other reason than the fact that it will hurt Leah Thomas's feelings if we don't. And of course, his feelings are the only feelings that matter. His feelings and the feelings of other trans people. I guess I should clarify. I say we don't tell people no anymore. It's only certain people we don't say no to. If you belong to certain categories, you don't get the no. Now, the other women on his team, they get, they get a no. Because, because his feelings, for some reason, are supposed to outweigh the feelings of women who don't want their sports destroyed, who don't want their privacy invaded, um, who don't want their very identities uh, appropriated and stolen and cheapened and turned into a, a, a costume. The feelings of a million women are dust when stacked up against the feelings of one gender-confused man. All of reality is dust. The truth is dust. Biology, everything, all of it is to be discarded for one trans person's feelings. Well, I think the answer to that should be no. I urge everyone to say no. Don't affirm what you know are lies. Don't cooperate with what you know is wrong. Don't abandon what you know is true. Don't pretend to believe what you don't believe. It takes some courage to say no in this world. It's a a word that's not said nearly enough. A word that a guy like Leah Thomas has probably never heard in his life. But he needs to hear it. All of the gender ideologues need to hear it. All of the liars and frauds trying to push and coerce and shame us into surrendering our common sense in so many areas of life. All of the uh, cry bullies using emotional blackmail because they have no arguments. Everyone demanding that we pretend to believe what we don't believe. Pretend what is true, what is not true. All of them everywhere need to hear it. No. That's the word. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, you've heard plenty about inflation, of course, and the thing is, when when inflation is at seven percent, like it is now, thanks to Biden, um, the paper money in your wallet is losing value, and it's losing value fast. You can just feel it. Like you should, if you have money in your wallet, you should just feel it getting lighter by the second. Um, Today, an ounce of gold, though, is worth nineteen hundred dollars. It was worth about three three hundred an ounce in two thousand. So I've been telling you for a while now that you can buy gold from Birch Gold. It's your hedge against inflation. It's your protection against all the the, the madness happening in the economy right now. But did you know there's another way to hedge against inflation? Buy silver from Birch Gold. Don't let the name confuse you. You can get silver as well. Silver is also considered real money. And historically speaking, it's extremely undervalued right now. It's an industrial metal that's in high demand for everything from electric cars to solar panels. Demand is only going to rise. And some analysts suggest that there's an unusual dislocation in price that may present very real opportunities for silver to rally over the next two years. Regardless, silver like gold is never going to zero. The American dollar, it's currently going into the toilet while precious metals are rising in value. So real simple call here. Call Birch Gold. They're the only company I trust. Don't wait. Start diversifying today. Text Walsh to 989898 to get a free info kit on buying gold or silver in a tax-sheltered account. There's no obligation to get this info. Text Walsh to 989898 to get your free info kit now. Well, we'll start uh, here. As mentions, I'll be speaking at Georgia Tech tonight. Looking forward to that. Um, journalist Andy No has the scoop here, as he's you know, of course, his, uh, part of what he does so well is keeping track of Antifa and what what they're up to. So, I learned from him today. He's got the he, he put the tweet out. It says the Atlanta, Georgia cell of Antifa is using Twitter to try and organize a direct action to stop Matt Walsh's speaking event today at Georgia Tech. One of the strategies so far by an an Antifa furry member is to hoard all the tickets with fake signups. So this is a this is someone who's in Antifa and they're also a furry, and those things often go hand in hand. By the way. Not to harp on it or anything, but uh, speaking of people who have never been told no, you know, furry, that's that's another example of what happens when you've got someone their whole life. Like no one has ever sat them down and said, no, stop this. This is insane. What the hell is wrong with you? No one's ever said that. And so now these are adults running around in furry costumes doing God knows what. Um, In any case. So the Atlanta Antifa cell they uh, tweeted this this is what they tweeted Heads up transphobic propagandist Matt Walsh is speaking on Georgia Tech campus tomorrow evening in an event sponsored by the far right leadership and student in turning point USA if tech students are organizing a counter we'd be happy to boost to boost it reach out um and then some other Antifa members are saying that uh they're going to that now they're they're trying to buy up all the tickets so that there won't be room for actual you know For people actually want to listen to the talk i say buy the tickets tickets are free of course we're not going to sell tickets to an event like this Um, but we do you know you have to register ahead of time because there's only there's only so much room in the room and so their tactic and we saw them do this at down at university of north texas um where they got in there first however i don't know if they registered ahead of time or what for that particular talk but they got in there first and they were the only ones in the room all the people that wanted to get to the talk couldn't get in and then they just shut the talk down by chanting and screaming and spitting and doing all this kind of stuff. So that's their plan. That's what they're going to try to do tonight. Now, they're going to run into some problems trying to do it to me um, for a few reasons. One of them being that, you know, I think we had so far we have something like 700 people trying to register for this event. There's only there's, you know, like room for less than half of that in the room. So um, if they want to if they want to keep everybody out, they're going to have they they they, they have to organize and and take up a lot of these registrations, which. I don't think they've been able to do, but we'll see. But the other thing is, listen, it doesn't matter what they do. And I, and I want you to understand this. Okay. If you're in Antifa or you're on the left or whatever, you don't like the fact that I'm coming to speak at Georgia Tech. You don't like the fact that I'm coming to speak anywhere else. And I've got a whole college tour coming up this, this spring. I'll be going down, by the way, to University of North Texas, where all that madness happened. I promised you, I told you, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go, and I will be there probably sometime mid-April. We're working out the details right now, and I'll let you know more about that soon. But um, I'm coming to speak at these events, and you don't want me there. Well, I just want you to know there's literally nothing you can do to stop it. I will be there, and I will say my piece. No matter what you do, I will still be there, and I will still say what I came to say. One way or another, you start making a scene, and i got to wait for you to get carried out of the room by cops. That's fine, and then I'll just resume. Like, there's there's... You can make an ass of yourself. You can make a fool of yourself. That that you can do all that, but you can't stop me from speaking. It's not going to happen. Cannot happen. Now the other option that you could try, I'll give the same challenge to Antifa that uh, I give to every you know any any college campus I go to, because there is a Q and A session afterwards. So, uh, if I'll make the same deal. In fact, I'll go even farther this time. If you're on the left and you show up to this event and you can provide a definition of the word woman that is coherent and that is also consistent with your left wing ideology, with gender ideology, like if you could give a gender ideology consistent definition of woman that's also coherent and makes sense, if you can do that, then I will retire from public speaking on the spot. I will renounce my conservative ideals I will pledge allegiance to the Antifa flag right then and there, if you can do that. That's the deal. Let's see. Um, all right, so war continues to rage in Europe. You might be feeling a little bit uneasy right now, but uh, if you are, take heart. Just know that our enemies around the world are shaking in fear, terrified to realize that our military has far. Far superior LGBTQ initiatives. You know that's we've got them beat, and I can imagine over in Russia and China and across the world, they're looking at this and they're saying to themselves, um, "Look, there's only so much we can get away with because these Americans over there. I mean, they've got so many LGBTQ initiatives in their military that we, we we just can't compete. I mean, look how inclusive they are. Look, look at the tolerance. They will crush us." with their tolerance and inclusivity. Um, So here's a reassuring tweet from Undersecretary of the Air Force, Gina Ortiz-Jones. She tweeted out and said, great conversation with our LGBTQ initiatives team. They're asking the hard but necessary questions that will ultimately make us a stronger, more inclusive Department of the Air Force. And yes, again, this was tweeted March 10th. So that was, you know, a couple days ago of this year. And so this is while this is all going on, in Europe, this is what they're doing. And then you can see, unfortunately, we don't get it. We don't get a, a, this was a Zoom meeting that they had. And we don't have a clip of that meeting as much as I'd love to see it. But you could see the, um, you could see the people that are participating in it. And there's someone there, you know, uh, standing in front of the, uh, the, the, the pride flag, not just the pride flag, but the new, the, the newest, most updated and also ugliest pride flag, which is saying something. Uh, and this is what they're focusing on now. Probably shouldn't need to explain this, I guess, but but I will anyway, or, or really reiterate, because anytime I bring this up, and I tweeted this out yesterday, and, and um, there were people saying, "Well, hey, it, it doesn't matter," because whether you're gay, straight, lesbian, tra- transgender, you could actually be a furry. I mean, it, even even then, uh, there's no reason why with modern, with the way wars are fought in modern society. There's no reason why that would detract from our military readiness. There's no reason why you can't be a drone pilot, right? No reason why you can't, uh, the way someone put it, well, like, you can still push a button and launch a missile, right? Because it's as simple as that, apparently. Um, but the problem is that, number one, fighting wars is not quite as simple as that, despite how it may seem in video games, even in modern times. But also, it, it's an, it, the, the point is, if this has to be explained, it's a matter of priorities, Okay, so the question is, what are you prioritizing? What is what's your what's your mission statement? And that matters a lot in any organization. What lies at the core of your organization? What are you focused on primarily? Now there might be, there are plenty of organizations that don't really have anything at the core. And those are the organizations that tend to fall apart. They're, they're ineffective. Or they can only be effective for so long because there's nothing sort of t- holding it all together. And so, again, any, any institution, any organization, out, private sector or public, you got to know what's at the core. What are we all here for? What are we doing? What, what matters the most to us? And the people running these institutions have to know that because that's also going to determine who they recruit, who they bring in. And the problem right now is that the people in charge, okay, the people running the military, to include civilians, and bureaucrats, and everything, for them, they've decided, as a as a top down decision. This is not a this is not a, a a criticism of the the actual people in the military who are doing the fighting, but a top down decision. That at the core of the military, they've decided it's going to be things like inclusiveness, tolerance, diversity, um, you know, LGBT affirmation. That's the problem. That cannot be at the core of your military. That cannot be the mission statement. The mission has to be, and the mission for every military that's ever existed on the earth until now has been to defend your homeland and kill the enemy. And when that's your mission, when you understand that is your core mission, then the other thing is you're going to be recruiting people who are the best at that. That's what you're worried about. Are you very good at defending the homeland and killing the enemy? Are you a killer of the enemy? Are you, are you good at that? Well, come on board if you are. There are some other qualifications as well, but that's the fundamental qualification. Can you do that? But now what they're saying, because, you know, someone like uh, Gina Ortiz-Jones, she's not worried about that. She wants to know, well, are you affirmative? You know, are you progressive? That's what she cares about. And that is going to severely damage the organization and the institution. All right. From Axios, a fourth dose of the COVID-19 vaccine will be necessary in order to maintain manageable levels of hospitalizations and mild infections. Um, This, according to Pfizer CEO Alberta Borla, who was on Face the Nation on Sunday, So now we're being told by the Pfizer CEO, he's he's recommending that we do get a fourth shot. In related news, the McDonald's CEO recommends that you do get French French fries with your hamburger. The uh, CEO of Cinnabon recommends that uh, even if you went to Cinnabon this morning for breakfast, you could still go for dessert tonight. That's what he recommends. And so the Pfizer CEO is recommending, yeah, sure, keep, keep keep on getting those shots. But he was interviewed on Face the Nation and he said something that... It's, it's the kind of thing that even now, still, if I said it, I'd probably be banned from YouTube. So I'm going to let the Pfizer CEO say this. Listen, listen to this whole clip, and then especially at the very end. Uh, let's listen.
1: Do you think that we will, every fall, have to prepare ourselves for a booster shot with COVID, just like we get a flu shot? I think so. Many variants are coming, and Omicron was the first one that was able to evade, in a skillful way, the immune protection that we were giving. But also, we know that the duration of the protection doesn't last very long. So what we are trying to do, and we are working very diligently right now, it is to make not only a vaccine that will protect, again, all variants, including Omicron, but also something that uh, can protect for at least a year. So you've seen some of that data on a a fourth dose, a second booster shot. Mm -hmm. You think it will be necessary? It is necessary a fourth boost right now. The, The protection that you are getting from the third It is uh, good enough, actually quite good for hospitalizations and deaths. It's not that good against infections, but doesn't last very long. Mm -hmm. But we are just submitting those data to the FDA, and then we will see what the experts also will say.
0: Okay, so you heard him there there at the end. The Pfizer CEO, direct quote, says, it's not that good against infections, but it doesn't last very long. So, (laughs) uh that's a remarkable, not, not a surprising statement, but still a remarkable statement coming from the Pfizer CEO. Um, given that he's supposed to be selling the vaccine, it's, it's not that good against infections, but it doesn't last very long. And I also love it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's good enough on its own. But when you put the but in there instead of an, and, I think there's a lot of significance. I don't mean to put too fine a point on it, but there's some significance to his use of the word but instead of and. So like you could have said, it's not that good against, against infections and it doesn't last very long. Okay. But it's not that good against infections, but it doesn't last very long. So the but makes it sound like the next part is the upside, right? So you, you start with the downside, not that good against infections, but, and then you're, you're waiting for the upside and the but is, but it doesn't last very long either. So it's not that good against infections. Also, it it, it wears off almost immediately. So that's the good part. Um, so it's as if he's saying, I'm not, it's as if he is saying that, um, yeah, this thing is useless, but the good news is it won't be in your system for very long anyway. It's as if he's saying that. As if. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's as if he is saying that as the CEO of Pfizer. All right. Let's move over to the uh, the sports world. This is from the New York Post. It says Naomi Osaka's match at Indian Wells took an ugly turn on uh on Saturday when a heckler made an appearance now backing up for just a second Naomi Osaka just for context and everything you you remember her she's the tennis star who has been um she's a very emotional person and she has become you know a sort of a mascot for mental health and she decided you know she talks a lot about her mental health and she decided that she for a while she can't take questions from the from the media, because she can't handle anyone doubting her, or asking any questions at all. I mean, she's a, a a star athlete, globally famous. And she has, it's not that she woke up one day and found that she's a star tennis player. Um, no, much to her credit, right? To become a star athlete, you have to pursue that with every fiber of your being. It doesn't happen by accident. So she's worked very, very hard, very, very intentionally to get to this point, to become a world famous athlete. And so now she's a world famous athlete because that's what she wants to be, um yet she cannot tolerate any questions, any criticism, any scrutiny from the public and that was made very clear on Saturday at um, Indian Wells when a heckler started doing a little bit of heckling and first let's um it's kind of hard to hear what's happening here but let's let's listen first this this is the tennis match, and then you can I think you can hear the he- heckler. And the heckler says, Naomi, you suck. Um, but let's listen to that.
1: Veronica yourself. Thank you. Thank you, please. Sorry. Well, obviously, some disturbance up in the stands. Something's been shouted.
0: Okay, so from what you can tell, it's hard for me to even hear But there was one person who said, "Naomi, you suck," and pr- pretty standard sports heckling going on there. Um, pretty, pretty standard stuff. I think you'll spend. 35 seconds in the stands at uh, any football game. And you're going to hear much worse than that Um, directed at doesn't matter like who it is. It could be the the, the best player in the world. They're still going to get the you suck. And and again, much more colorful language as well. So one person says you suck. The rest of the crowd starts jeering at that person. Not Naomi, Naomi, They're, they're, they're taking her side. They're taking Naomi Osaka's side. So it's, You know, However many people, there's let's say 500 people in the stands. I don't know. Um, Maybe a lot. I can't imagine that more than 500 would want to sit there and watch a tennis match, so I'm going to say 500. I can't imagine that five even would, but whatever. If you got 500 people, one person criticize you. 499 are on your side saying that you're a wonderful person. Um, Pretty good ratio. You think you'd be able to just shrug that off. Um, And we're just going to leave aside for a second. Again, I mean, I can't imagine anyone going to a tennis match. The fact that it just seems so unnatural to be... You're watching sports and to be sitting there so quietly. To me, it doesn't make any sense. But still, 499, let's say, to one. Um, everyone loves you. One person says you suck. But Osaka can't handle it. Cannot handle the criticism from that one. And then she doesn't do well through the rest of the match. And she's very distraught about it. And at the end of the match, she actually um, takes the microphone... I guess the winner was able to address the crowd, but then she comes up, because she lost, and she takes a microphone and starts talking about and, and is still crying about it and is talking about, you know, how the why this hurt her feelings so much. Let's listen, listen to that.
1: I just wanted to say, um, yeah.
0: um, to be honest, <laughs> I've gotten heckled before, like, it didn't really bother me, but, um, it's, like, heckled here, like, I've watched a video of Venus and Serena getting heckled here, and if you've never watched it, you should watch it, and I don't know why, but, like, it, it went into my head and I, it got replayed a lot,
1: um, I'm trying not to cry, but, uh, I just wanted to say thank you and um, congratulations. Yeah, just thank you.
0: Okay. Well, to be honest, I was expecting something a little bit more emotionally affecting from her, but she's very, very upset. And uh, and she talks about apparently Serena and, and Venus, uh, Venus and Serena got heckled at that same place years ago, and so she she was thinking about that as well. Um, this is I, I. It's hard to believe that someone could get to this point in sports and athletics and be this emotionally fragile. <clears throat> it, it's, it's really hard to believe because all along the way you, you in order to get better, you, you have to be able to endure criticism. Like there's, you would think there wouldn't be uh, one successful athlete on the planet who has not, been subjected to all kinds of criticism, because that's part of, of, of getting better. And it's such a grueling thing to be to perfect your craft in any field, but especially in front of, and you're, you're performing in front of people, you know, you're in front of an audience, you're a public figure, so you would think that you would just be used to it by now. Um, that's what's extraordinary to me. And yet this is someone who, even after all this time, just is not able to endure any kind of criticism at all. And look, here's the thing. As as always with these sorts of things, if the story was just that, what you just saw, a tennis player is insulted by one person in a crowd and starts crying about it, if that was it... Then I wouldn't have much to say about it. I'd say, okay, well, whatever. She, and also she's, she is a woman. And so women are a little bit more emotional. And so I give her a little bit more leeway there. You certainly see this kind of thing a lot more often with female athletes than you do with male athletes. That's for sure. But there's no difference between men and women, of course, right? And yet all of the, of the crying because of criticism and everything, or most of it anyways among female athletes. But anyway, if that's all it was, then I would, I wouldn't have much to say about it. But the problem is in the reaction to it and the media comes along and um and says uh that that actually this is courageous that we are supposed to not just like feel sorry for her even that would be a bridge too far for me i'm sorry but i i i cannot really pity you that much when you're rich and famous and almost everybody loves you but like five people don't that's i i, I don't have a lot of pity available there are a lot of people in this world who need pity and i just don't have any any left in store for you in that position. But that's not even what they're saying. They're not saying pity her. They're saying, uh, admire it as courageous. Somebody who cannot endure any criticism, who cries at any criticism, one person in 500, 499 love her, one person doesn't. She starts crying about it, focusing on that. And that's courageous, we're told. That's what the media has been telling us. Yet more think pieces written. Uh, There was was one I was just reading in the Indy Star by a, a sports writer saying... It was something like the, the headline was, you know, this this event shows us what courage looks like and what it doesn't look like. And he was he was making the point that the heckler is not courageous. It's not courageous to sit there and heckle someone. Well, of course, it's not. No one's saying it is. But Naomi Osaka, she, she is courageous. I just don't see it. Before we get to the to uh, the comment section, one last note here. Maybe, maybe we're talking about what, what courage is not. Here's what courage actually is. This is from the Wall Street Journal. It says, One of the greatest maritime mysteries of modern times was solved when a team of explorers said they had discovered the wreck of Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance, which disappeared under the Antarctic sea ice in 1915. An international team of marine archaeologists and scientists located the wreck 3,000 miles, or rather uh, meters, I should say, not, not miles, meters under the Weddell Sea, approximately four miles south of the position originally recorded when the endurance sank. Um, So this ship has been lost for over a hundred years and they finally found it, which is really fascinating, I think. But I mention this because the story itself is simply incredible. If you don't know about Ernest Shackleton, you should, because he's one of the great leaders in history, one of the great men. Um, And it's just a damn crime that more isn't taught or anything taught really about Shackleton in school. And it is a great example of what actual courage looks like. It's it's courage on a level that most of us will never achieve, will never get anywhere near, but it's good to have that sort of as your North Star uh, to know where you should be headed. So just to summarize, back in the early 20th century, 1915, Shackleton devises his plan to trek across the entire Antarctic continent. He wants to travel across it all the way. And he decides to do this because someone else had already gone to the Pole. Originally, he wanted to go to the South Pole, uh, but there was a race to the South Pole. A guy named Amundsen, a Norwegian, beat the British team there. And, um, the British team, after arriving at the pole, seeing the, you know, another country's flag there, they know they'd been beaten. And then they have to walk back across, you know, Antarctica having lost. And then most of them die on the way. You know, they starve and freeze and it's a horrible thing. So anyway, Shackleton sees that the pole has been conquered and he sees that his fellow Brits have died horrible deaths down there. And he says, you know what? I'll go anyway only I'll be the first to travel all the way across the continent, not just to the pole. Um, and he puts together a team. He gets on a ship with the prophetic name Endurance, ends up getting stuck in the ice before reaching the continent. So they spend almost an entire year in the ice on this ship, eating into their provisions, freezing in the cold. Finally, the ice starts to melt. It's moving around, and it crushes the ship, and, and it starts to sink. And that's how it ended up at the bottom of the Weddell Sea. So now, now they have to abandon ship. They're on an ice floe down in the most desolate region of the world, literally just sitting now on the ice. And they sat there for another two months just on the ice in Antarctica, right? Finally, they realized that the ice, the ice has drifted close enough to an island that they could make a break for it. So they sail 300 miles on these little rickety lifeboats uh, to this island. They make it there alive, but the island can't sustain them for very long because it's bar- barren and desolate. So Shackleton knows that um, some of them are going to have to go for help Closest help is South Georgia, which is an island which is about 700 nautical miles away from where they currently were. So he decides that along with a team, I think five people, he's going to get on this lifeboat and go 700 miles across open ocean, across some of the harshest and roughest seas on Earth to try to get help. And he also keep in mind, this is like a small island he's trying to make it to, navigating. It doesn't have GPS or anything, right? So if he misses the island, which would be very easy to do, then he's just going to be lost at sea and they're going to die of starvation if they don't drown in a storm before that. So he goes 700 miles, makes it to South Georgia, makes it to civilization, and then immediately gets on a ship and goes back to rescue the rest of his men. It took like three tries and he got them all. Nobody died. He kept everybody alive. This is two years stranded in Antarctica. Um, and he kept everyone from dying. He kept them from going insane. He kept them from killing each other. Not a small feat. Just a remarkable tale of leadership and bravery. That that everyone should, this is like one of these guys who should be a household name. And most kids have never heard his name, which is a, a damn, I say again, it's a crime, I believe. But there's your bit of Monday inspiration. We started with uh, you know, serial killers dismembering people, we got to a little bit of inspiration, and then we're gonna go negative again here in a moment, but let's get first to the comment section.
1: Daily cancellations are the-
0: Okay, so dailywire.com slash sweet baby comments. And let's go immediately to clip eight.
1: All right, sweet daddy Walsh, your wish is my command. Oh my
0: gosh. Now, I think so. He got sweet baby getting tattoos. And I mentioned like. Three days ago, I think it was, because someone got the Sweet Baby Gang custom license plate. I said, if you're really dedicated, you'll get the Sweet Baby Gang tattoo. But I said I was joking, and I said I will not be held responsible if someone actually goes out and d- does it. And so this member of the Sweet Baby Gang has gotten on both legs the Sweet Baby me as a as a baby in a diaper, and then the other one was a Sweet Baby Gang right on the front of his like thighs, for all the world to see. And I think those those are real are those real tattoos. Those are real. My screen here is kind of small, but you could see the red skin irritation, so I think that tells us this isn't this is not henna or a stick-on tattoo or something. You got the real tattoo. Oh man. Well, congratulations, sir. I mean, it's I first of all, beautiful art. Okay, beautiful body art there. Um I think we can all agree on that. But I don't. I don't know what else to say. I'm. I'm speechless in the best possible way. But I I, again, I will not be held responsible for that. When you want to get when you want to get the tattoo removed in six months, don't come asking me for the funds. Okay. Uh, Well done, though. Well done, sir. Okay. um, Let's see. Michael Knapper says, I was recently sentenced to multiple felonies and I was shown much grace. I owned my crimes. I came to Jesus Christ while I was in jail. And after I was arrested, I bonded out. Spent the next three years changing my life. These things happened because Jesus Christ took pity on me and changed my heart. The judge could clearly see this and gave me house arrest instead of prison. I cried when he said that because I knew I deserved prison. People do change, especially if God intervenes. Jussie Smollett is not one of those people. His sentence was a slap on the wrist for the damage that he tried to do. He still claimed to be innocent at the sentencing. He lied to himself and others so much leading up to the sentencing that he probably believes that he is innocent. Um, right, exactly. I mean, ch- change begins with repentance. And I talk about how, you know, harsh prison sentences, and I'm, I'm very much, in, I'm a law and order kind of person. So I'm in favor of harsher prison sentences. I think this is the kind of prison reform we need is putting people in prison, putting more people in prison and for longer is actually what we need. And I think our the, the chaos in our cities attests to that. But that doesn't mean that repentance and reformation are impossible. Now, there are some crimes where it's either impossible or we have to treat it like it is impossible. If you're a child rapist, if you're a serial killer, then maybe you, you, anyone, I have to believe that anyone who's alive on earth, God can change their heart. But um, the chances are so low that for basic societal self-defense, we have to assume that you can never be reformed and keep you in prison forever. But there are many, there are many crimes that are not like that. Um and people can be reformed and uh, and oftentimes are. But as you point out, Michael, it it has to begin with repentance and owning what you did. Repentance begins with taking ownership of your actions, admitting that it's wrong. That's the first step, and then you get to repentance. Um this with with Jesse Smollett, he's totally unrepentant. He's not admitting even that he did it, even though everybody knows that he did. Which is why if I was the judge in this, in this case, here's what I would do. I would say, Jussie, I can give you 15 years in prison by the law, and I'm going to give you all 15. However, if you admit what you did and apologize for it, I want you to get in front of a camera hold a press conference, tell everyone you did it, explain the whole crime, admit that you did it, and you can never go back and say, oh, I didn't really mean it. If you do that, that I'll knock. You know, what, I might even knock ten years off the sentence if you do that. Um, at, at the very least, I mean, this judge who gave hundred and fifty days in jail, at the very least, a a requirement going into that should have been you have to admit that you did it. And instead, they're letting this guy. That's why it's all it's all pointless. One hundred fifty days in jail. You know, it, he's he's not. He's not admitting that he did it. There's no repentance. He's not changing. He'll get out of prison, and you know what he'll do? He'll he'll, he'll come up with a different hate crime hoax. He'll do it again. All right. Um, Let's see. Rachel says, the most controversial thing you've ever said, uh, quote, my wife and I have never owned a microwave. How? Yeah, you know what? This is our one protest against modern society. This is the one thing. It it, it didn't start as a decision. Like we didn't, it's not that when we first got married, we didn't put it in our vows that we were going to pledge to never have a microwave. We didn't really talk about it. We didn't have any kind of anti-microwave sentiments exactly. Um, But it just kind of started that way. We just didn't have a microwave. We ended up not buying one originally. And then we realized that, you know, we we don't actually need a microwave because whatever your microwave does, there are other things in the kitchen that will perform that task probably even better than the microwave would. And um, so now we've just kind of stuck with it. Now, now it has become a thing. Right. It's a conversation piece when people visit our house. We can say, you know what? Look, no microwave. Conversations are very boring at our house, apparently. Um, Let's see. Okay, one other uh, comment says David. David says hot take. Americans are experiencing exceptional levels of stress. Rather, Americans are experiencing exceptional levels of stress. Unprecedented is a strong term, admittedly. But it's important to recognize that modern first world people are prone to experience undue stress in any and every situation. Somebody who has a strong grasp of what's important and who have reasonable mental health, read people who bef- people before the last 20 years, will experience less stress because they're sane. We in the modern world, however, are not sane. So we get unreasonably stressed out about even the most basic of things. Yeah, I mean, you raise a good point. I think... Um, the way that I look at it, it's kind of like if a 17 year old kid goes through a breakup and is totally distraught and devastated and practically, you know, uh, just just utterly ruined by it emotionally. You know that it's you know that it's not a big deal and you know that they're going to get over it. you as an adult. You know that and you'll know that they'll have forgotten about this other person in a month. That doesn't change the fact that they are, in fact, experiencing very real emotional devastation. I mean, to them, it's real because this is the only life they've lived. And for them, this is the hardest thing that's ever happened to them. Um, and they don't have the emotional tools necessary to deal with something like this. But what, what, what makes it so bad for the kid going through this is not the severity of the trauma itself, which in the grand scheme of things is almost nothing. There's really no trauma there. But what makes it bad is, is, is his limited capacity to handle bad things. And right in his lack of perspective. And so I think you're right that it's we are all sort of in that boat as modern people. We're get we we're, we're very stressed out. We claim to be stressed and we actually are. But it's not because the stresses are so serious. It's just because our capacity to deal with even the, the most mild inconvenience is, uh, is so diminished. And that's where all the stress comes from. You know, the media loves to tell one side of every story, specifically the regime-approved side. That's why we've taken it upon ourselves to start our own publishing wing called DW Books, and we're excited that one of the first books we'll be publishing is 12 Seconds in the Dark by Sergeant Mattingly. The book is the true story of what really happened the night of the Brianna Taylor shooting. Mattingly, a 12-year police veteran, takes readers inside the uh, department's response and debunks the lies that have recklessly been shared with the public. Um, so you know it's going to be interesting, but here's the trailer now. Check it out. It was very chaotic. It was very quick. Instantly, I knew I was shot. Breonna Taylor, she was caught in the crossfire of those bullets. As soon as your brain's registering, it's already over. The media got so many things wrong in this case, saying we had the wrong apartment. Her name wasn't on the warrant. She was shot and killed in her sleep, in her bed. These are lies. This is not true. And all the while, you're hearing all these outside influences from athletes and Oprah and Ellen DeGeneres and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, all those people coming and attacking you, putting your name on their account, saying he should be in prison. All these things that they have no idea what they're talking about, but they have such influence. The more we attack police for doing their job, the less good qualified police you're going to have. When you read 12 Seconds in the Dark, you will find out the truth of what really happened the night of the Breonna Taylor raid. You know, in a world where voices like his are censored and stories are spun to fit the media's narrative, 12 Seconds of the Dark is a perfect example of how important it is for the truth to be told. The book releases tomorrow, March 15th, but it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. So go ahead and get your book now. And speaking of great content, if you missed the premiere of The Hyperions, then there's no need to fret. The film is now streaming at DailyWire.com. That's where it's going to live now. And uh, if you haven't seen it yet, here's the trailer. Check it out. Calling all Hyperions. My name is Vista
1: Mandelbaum. My brother and I have taken four hostages. Everybody against the wall. We've come for one thing, our Titan badges. Is this real? This yes, ma'am, no, no, this is real. It's it. my Titan so this. Well, I want that too.
0: It's the police. They
1: wanna to talk to whoever's in charge. This Titan badge can grant an individual superhuman power. Perhaps it's time for someone else to take on the responsibility. Meet Apollo. I'd recommend next time using your power. Um, Yeah, if you think so. Calling all Hyperions. On my way. You're making such a mess in here. We've
0: got a Hyperion in route. Not a good time to look stupid. Shots fired! God, come on, give me my gun!
1: Suit up for adventure. She's trying to destroy me. Next question, how's the family? The family is, um, uh... What is it? Marvelous.
0: The Hyperions is a dysfunctional family film with an 80s aesthetic and it's definitely worth the watch. So if you're not a member yet, now's the time to join. Plus, if you join right now, you'll be entered to win a spot for the red carpet premiere of Terror on the Prairie starring Gino Carano. If you win, you'll get flown out to watch Terror on the Prairie and get the chance to meet the Daily Wire folks and the film's cast and crew. Two lucky members will each get two tickets to the movie plus, uh, their hotel, flight, all that stuff that can be paid for. So it's going to be a great. Uh, a great night for you. Head to dailywire.com slash red and sign up with code red carpet to be entered. And don't worry, if you're already a member, just head to dailywire.com slash red to enter. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. So those who have been living their lives blissfully ignorant of the latest celebrity gossip may or may not realize that Kanye West and Kim Kardashian recently split up. Uh, well, in fact, if you're a really healthy person, you may not even realize that they were ever together to begin with, but they were uh, for nearly a decade, I think, or seven or eight years or something. And during which time they had uh, four children. So a few months ago, though, Kim left Kanye, um, managed to be declared legally single almost immediately, thanks to the wonders of no, no-fault divorce laws, and then immediately started shacking up with a strung out cartoon character named Pete Davidson. So Kim was parading, has been parading all around town with Pete, which doesn't sit well with Kanye, who's been very publicly attacking Pete Davidson, complaining about the divorce, making music videos where he depicts himself in claymation form, burying his wife's new lover alive, those sorts of things, you know, pretty standard stuff. Um, For her part, Kim Kardashian has claimed that all she wants is privacy. And she made this claim while securing a multi-million dollar deal with Hulu for a new reality show about her life. Because we all know that the Kardashians cherish nothing so much as their privacy, which is why they will only sell it to the highest bidder. Now, all of this possibly seems irrelevant and probably uninteresting, and it is at first blush. But there's something deeper and more significant to be found, if not in the drama itself, than in the public reaction to it. And that reaction has been almost universally negative towards Kanye West. Um, Everyone, especially the media, uh, but most of the peanut gallery as well, seems to agree that Kanye is a huge jerk for constantly, you know, insulting and denigrating his wife's lover um, and for refusing to accept the fact that the marriage is over. You know, the general consensus is that Kanye West is, is acting insane. In fact, he is insane. And in that Kim Kardashian is, is the helpless victim in all of this. Remember, all she wants is privacy. So naturally, she left her husband and started publicly dating Pete Davidson 45 seconds later while working out a deal for a new reality show, which will certainly feature many plot lines about her love life because she just wants privacy. Um, This consensus didn't seem to change at all yesterday when text messages were released between Davidson and Kanye, where Davidson taunts Kanye, brags about being in bed with his wife, and even sends a picture of himself lying in bed with his wife. Most people on social media seem to think that uh, it was actually very sweet of Davidson because it showed how, how willing he is to stick up for his lady. Stick up for her by stealing her away from her husband and, uh, you know, wrecking the family and then texting pictures. I mean, just what a knight in shining armor T- Pete Davidson really is, you know. Now, I've noticed in this uh, public reaction a very distinct, what I would say is almost a feminist streak to it, even among ostensible conservatives who have chimed in there's something wrong, I think, something disordered about the feelings, about rather about the things that people are saying about this. And that gut feeling on my part was confirmed yesterday when I tweeted um, kind of my bird's eye view, my bird's eye hot take about all this. And I said, this is me, um, it's actually totally normal and healthy for Kanye West to be extremely, even obsessively angry about the fact that his wife is shacking up with another man. It is, in fact, the most normal thing about him. Now, this to me seems obvious. Whatever else he might say about Kanye or Kim, or any of this, we we should all be able to at least agree that it's understandable that a man would be extremely, extremely angry and devastated and heartbroken and sad and frustrated that his wife and the mother of his four children has left him. And what's worse is now sleeping with someone else. And worst of all, that someone else happens to look like a heroin addicted carny. But people do not seem very understanding of that. And it's not because of their preconceived notions about Kanye West or Kim Kardashian. It's, It's because of their preconceived notions about marriage. That's what's coming out in all this. And that's what, that's what interests me, is about what all this says about marriage, right? This was made clear, as I said, by the responses to my tweet, um, most of which claimed that my opinion was misogynistic. The marriage is over and that's it, everyone told me. Uh, Kanye must accept it. Kim is not his property. Kim does not belong to him, as one person told me. Kim can leave whenever she wants, for whatever reason she wants. And when she does, it's Kanye's job to accept it and, as it was put to me many times, move on. There's a woman named Rachel Greenspan who's verified on Twitter for some reason. She summarized the perspective of many of her fellow cat ladies and their supporters. Uh, She said, referring to my opinion, she said, Literally, how can someone think this LMFAO? This take isn't hot. It's delusional and disgusting and frightening. People are allowed to leave relationships whenever they so choose. It's actually beyond not normal to harass and threaten your ex-partner's new partner, period. Another woman also verified for unclear reasons. Margo Harris said, time to delete this. I hope your exes are safe. Again, many other similar comments. Now I told Margo that I don't have any ex-wives. I have just the one wife and she's still my wife and she's doing well. In the interest of being polite, I also said to Margo that I hope her cats are fine as well. Now I, I admit when I looked at her profile, I found out that she identifies herself as a dog mom so I knew that she gave off the vibes of a woman who defines herself by her pet ownership. I just I got the pet wrong, so I was very close. In any case, what you find in all this is the view that marriage vows are effectively meaningless and worthless. And they can be broken at any time for any reason. And when they are broken, you don't even, you don't even have the right to be angry about it if somebody breaks their vows to you. The thing is that uh, the Margos and Rachels and Kim Kardashians of the world... They hold this view about marriage and about marriage marriage vows, and yet eventually they get married anyway. And most of the time, they don't inform their husbands that they feel this way about the union. They don't say, hey, by the way, I don't actually think this means anything. They also, of course, throw extravagant celebrations for their marriage, spending lots of money, demanding lots of fawning attention, even even though they're celebrating a union that they think is pointless and which they have no intention of keeping together on a permanent basis. This is the popular modern approach to marriage, and it's why so many marriages don't stay together for very long. It's an approach that renders the whole exercise fruitless and futile. It's all a charade. You're playing house. The vows are merely part of the ceremony. That's it. It's all pageantry, as far as you're concerned. Nothing deeper going on there. But that's not what marriage actually is. In fact, contrary to the Twitter mob, actually in a marriage— Your spouse does belong to you. I know it sounds very scandalous to say, and and, and to the modern ears, it rings as something very horrifying. But yeah, your spouse does belong to you. My wife belongs to me, and I belong to her. We belong together. That's not just a lyric in a million pop songs. It is that, but it's also what marriage is. You belong together. You made a vow to each other. Now, if marriage is not that, if it's not where where you make a vow and now you belong together and you belong in this union... And, um, you, you know, you owe yourself to the other just as they owe themselves to you. If that's not what it is, then there's no reason for marriage to be at all. What's the point of the marriage? Then don't get married if you don't see it that way. Um, I do not have the right to just up and leave my wife on a whim because I feel like it and go play house with some other woman. I don't, I don't have the right. I, I don't have the moral right to do that. Now, I do have the legal right with no-fault divorce. I shouldn't have that legal right, though. No-fault divorce gives me that legal right. It shouldn't. Most contracts can't be broken by anyone for any reason without any explanation or any exigent circumstances. With most contracts, if you want to break them, then there's all kinds of parameters that have to be met, and only under certain circumstances can that even happen. What's the point of a contract That has no binding effect whatsoever. If you don't, again, if you don't think that marriage binds you to the other, then don't get married. There's no point of it then. The marriage contract, the most important contract of all, the one that human civilization rests upon, why would it be the least meaningful contract of all? Either the vow means something or it doesn't either marriage is something or it isn't. Kanye's mistake, quote unquote, was thinking that his marriage meant something, but that's not really a mistake at all, or it shouldn't be. And to have this thing ripped away from you, your life torn apart, your children deprived of the intact nuclear family that they need and have a right to. Speaking of having a right to things, your children have a right to a mom and a dad. They have a right to an intact family. You owe that to your kids. You owe it to them. They're entitled to it. A lot of people think they're entitled to things they're not entitled to. Here's one thing that that uh, kids are entitled to: they're entitled to an intact family. It ought to. And when that happens to you, your spouse leaves you, tears the family apart. It, it ought to devastate you. If it doesn't, you cl- clearly didn't take the marriage seriously to begin with. Now, I mentioned Miss Margot's comments about my exes, hoping that they're safe because clearly I'm a violent and dangerous man due to my opinion about Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. Um, And, you know, I said that I don't have any ex-wives, but multiple people clarified that, no, she wasn't referring to ex-wives. She only said exes, you know, to include ex-girlfriends. That's exactly the problem, though. Obviously, what I'm saying doesn't apply to girlfriends. The person you're dating has no responsibility to you, no real commitment they have the same responsibility to you that they they have just to everybody, just in general. To be honest, I mean, you should be honest. You shouldn't lie. So if you're dating someone and you don't want to be dating them anymore and you want to be with somebody else, uh, let them know before you go and and be with that other person. And just those are your basic duties and responsibilities you have in a, in a dating relationship. It doesn't go any deeper than that. You can you can in a dating relationship you really can leave at any time for any reason. And if you're the person getting left, it it sucks and it's hard, but. It's it's your responsibility to accept it and move on. That's true of a dating relationship. It's not true of a marriage. A marriage is a different kind of thing. And the fact that so many people see no distinction between marriage and dating, they talk about partners, like, well, you know, just partners. Well, that's spouse or girlfriend. What's the difference? There's a lot of a difference. And the fact that you can't see it only proves my point. Now, all that said, Kanye's a hypocrite, I mean, because he's also shacking up with someone else now, probably out of revenge or spite, but doesn't make it any better. So, you know, go ahead and hit him for being a hypocrite. Um, Fine, I'll agree with you there. And point out how they've, you know, as is the case with so many marriages that fall apart, they obviously both hold a lot of the blame here. But you can't go after him or anyone else for being angry and devastated and broken about their spouse leaving them. That's entirely normal. That's the most normal Kanye West has probably ever been in his life. His critics are the irrational ones, the confused ones, the idiots. And that's why they're canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. And hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Heart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022.
1: Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, Vladimir Putin unleashes a strike against a Ukrainian base along the Polish border. Iran fires missiles at the U.S. consulate in Erbil, Iraq. And China generously offers to mediate between Russia and Ukraine. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen.